Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 32. Today we will be reading Book 9, chapters 1 through 3 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast Godsplaining. They will find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. Following his conversion, St. Augustine yet again gives thanks to God for such a great gift. So we start off there in praise. And St. Augustine also makes another life decision in that he gives up his post as a teacher of rhetoric. So we'll walk through that decision and his process of, of leaving that position in these chapters. We'll also get to see the effects of St. Augustine's conversion in other people's lives, the sort of instrumentality that we play in bringing other people to Christ. So that's exciting. Now it's sort of St. Augustine's turn to lead people to Christ as he had been led by others for for so many years. So before we get to all of that, uh, we can get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 1 O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Let my heart and tongue praise you. Yes, let all my bones say to the Lord, O Lord, who is like unto you? Let them speak, and may you answer me, saying unto my soul, I am your salvation. Who am I, and what am I? What evil have I not had within me, either by my deeds, or if not by them, then by my words, or if not them, then in my will? But you, O Lord, are good and merciful, and your right hand considered the depths of my death, and from the bottom of my heart you have emptied out that abyss of corruption. All of this was your gift, to turn my will away from what it had willed, and now to will what you willed. But through all those years, where and from what deep and low recesses was my free will called forth in but a moment, able now to submit my neck to your easy yoke, and my shoulders to your light burden, O Jesus Christ, my helper and my redeemer. All at once, how sweet did it become to me to desire no longer the sweetness offered by those trifles. And although I had feared to part with those things, I now took joy in not holding on to them. For you cast them away from me, O you who are the true and loftiest sweetness. You cast them away from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who are brighter than all light, though more hidden than all depths, you who are higher than all honor, though not to those who set themselves on high in their own conceits. 
Now my soul was free from biting concern with seeking all about me and acquiring, no longer wallowing in my filth and scratching the itch of my lusts. And now with words like a child I spoke to you my brightness, my riches, my health, my Lord and God. Chapter 2 And I resolved in your sight not to turbulently withdraw my tongue's labors from the sale of rhetorical skill, but rather to do so carefully and gently. For I no longer wish to use my mouth to sell weapons to be used madly by young men who were students neither in your law nor in your peace, but rather in deceptive folly and legal skirmishing. Fortunately, this would require very little time, for the vintage vacation was only days away. Therefore I decided that I would let them take their leave from me as they normally would. Then, since I had been purchased for you, I would no longer put myself up for sale thereafter. Thus you knew our intentions, but nobody else was aware of any of this other than our friends. For we had agreed not to let word of this be spoken publicly. Nonetheless, as we now ascended from the Valley of Tears, singing the Song of Ascent, you had given us sharp arrows and destructive coals to be used against the treacherous tongue, which acts as though it is giving counsel when in fact it sets itself in contradiction to us and which acting on its love devours us like food you pierced our hearts with your charity and your words were within us as though they had penetrated into our depths and the examples of your servants whom you changed from darkness to brightness and from death to life piled up within our thoughts and they were kindled and burned up our heavy sluggishness so that we should not sink down into the abyss so too they set us so fiercely ablaze that all the blasts of wind from the subtle tongues of those who disputed our choice failed to extinguish this flame, but rather served only to make it flare up more fiercely. Nonetheless, for the sake of your name, which you have hallowed through all the earth, our vow and intention might be commended by some. Therefore it seemed that it would be showy for us not to wait for the vacation which was now so near and to abandon early this public profession that all knew about. If we were to do so, all who saw this act and noted how close the vintage time was would talk much about me for anticipating in this way, as though I had desired to seem like some kind of great man. And how would this have been for use for me to have people consider and debate why I did this, allowing evil words to be spoken about what was good for us? Moreover, that very summer, amid my overburdened literary labors, my lungs had given me trouble, forcing me to breathe deeply with difficulty, and the pain I felt in my chest indicated that they were injured, making even full and extensive speech difficult. This had troubled me, for it almost forced me to lay down the burden of teaching, or if I could be cured and recover, at least to break up my workload. But when I began to feel fully, indeed with a steadfast heart, the desire for leisure, so that I might see how it is that you are the Lord, you know, O oh my God, that I began to rejoice at having the second though real excuse that would perhaps somewhat lessen the offense felt by those who for the sake of their own free sons never wish me to have the freedom of those who are your children full of such joy i waited until the day would come perhaps twenty days hence it took a great deal of strength to endure this for i no longer felt the greed that once upon a time had helped me bear this load thus i remained alone with the burden and it would have been much for me to bear had it not been for newfound patience perhaps some of your servants my brethren might say that i sinned by doing this allowing myself to remain even one hour in the chair of lies even though my heart was now fully set to serve you nor would i argue with them but have you not, O merciful Lord, pardoned and remitted through your holy waters this sin as well, along with all my other most horrible and deadly sins? Chapter 3 
Verecundus was exhausted with concern because of our new blessedness, for he was well aware that he would be separated from us because he remained so tightly bound. He was not yet a Christian, although his wife was a believer, but this was more rigid than any other chain shackling him, so that he could not take the journey that we were now beginning. For he said that the only condition on which he could be a Christian were impossible for him. Still, he kindly allowed us to remain at his country house for as long as we wished to stay there. You, O Lord, shall reward him at the resurrection of the just, for you have already given him the lot of the righteous. For while we were away in Rome, he was seized by bodily illness and became a Christian during this sickness, thus being numbered among the faithful. And then he departed from this life. But your mercy was not merely upon him, but also upon us, for you saved us from agonizing in intolerable sorrow at the thought that he was not numbered among your flock, despite the memories we had of his exceeding kindness toward us. Thanks be to you, our God, that we are yours. Your suggestions and consolations tell us, O you who are faithful in your promises, that you now repay Verecundus for his country house in Cassiascum, where we rested in you from the fever of the world with the eternal freshness of your paradise. For you had forgiven him his sins on earth upon that mountain which is flowing with milk, your mountain, that abundant mountain. But while he felt sorrow at that time, Nebridius felt joy, for although he too was not yet a Christian and had fallen into the pit of that most pernicious error that led him to believe that your son's flesh was only imaginary, nonetheless he emerged from this and believed as we did. He had not yet received any of the sacraments of your church, though he was a most ardent seeker of the truth. However, he became a faithful member of the Catholic Church and served you in perfect chastity and continence among his people in Africa, with his whole household becoming Christian because of him. And not long after our conversion and regeneration through your baptism, you released him from the flesh so that he now lives in the bosom of Abraham. Whatever the meaning of that bosom is, that is where Nebridius now lives, O Lord, my sweet friend and your child, who went from being a freeman to being your child. For what other place is there for such a soul? There he lives in the place that he often questioned me about, though I was only a poor, inexperienced man. Now his ear listens not to the words from my mouth, but his own spiritual mouth is at your fountain, where he drinks as much as he can receive, wisdom in proportion to his thirst, endlessly happy. Nor do I think that he is so inebriated with those waters that he would forget me, for you, O Lord, whom he drinks in, are mindful of us." Such was our condition at that time. We comforted Verecundus in his sorrow at our conversion, as far as friendship permitted, and we exhorted him to become faithful, as would be fitting to his own life as a married man. And we awaited Nebridius to follow us, which he was all but doing, for he was so close. And thus, behold, the days rolled by at length. Long did they seem to me, and many in number, given the love I had for such freedom, to be able to sing to you from the deepest marrow of my bones. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Okay, book nine. We're starting off. It's great. Uh, and we're starting off in a familiar way, as St. Augustine is is often, what, accustomed to do? I don't know if we can say accustomed in writing your autobiography, but we're going to. So Augustine begins by giving praise to God, thanks to God for his conversion. And in that sort of litany of thanks and praise and, and reflection and, and prayer, there was, there was a line that stood out to me. And I think it's kind of, we'll, we'll set up our conversation about what else is happening in Augustine's life. But he says this, and what at one time I feared to lose, it was now a joy to me to put away. Speaking about 
in the, in the grand scheme of, of things, leaving behind his old life um, in the face of conversion and, and clinging to Christ. Um, I think this reality, this, this sort of fear of what, what do I lose? What do I give up? Um, the fear of change, the fear of pursuing Christ often dictates our kind of readiness to go to him. And it, yeah, I guess usually, mostly, when, when we do give it up, when we go sell what we have, give to the poor and, and follow Christ, that the resulting following is actually a lot greater than what we were clinging to before. So that really stood out to me as a sort of, as Augustine reflects on his conversion, as on his being with Christ now. Yeah, I don't know, Father Gregory, thoughts on th- this phase of immediately following Christ? Yeah, where does it, how does it hit you? Yeah, I think that um, one experience that you have of this is Maybe you have a friend, and that friend is anti-Christian or anti-Catholic, or at the very least not open to the proclamation of the faith. And that friend might also have other beliefs or might hold other things for whatever reason. You know, like, let's let's say that person is pro-choice, and let's say that that person is, like, aggressively opposed to you in matters of sexuality and whatever other things. Uh, but you're still friends with this person. You might have conversations with them about things. And while respectful, you, you know that the person isn't especially open to your principles, to your arguments, to the type of reasoning that you might employ, which is, you know, it can be tough. It can be frustrating because it's like, how in the world am I ever going to communicate with this person? But then you might have also had the experience that that person converts to the faith or has, you know, say they were already Christian or Catholic, has a, has a deeper encounter with the Lord Jesus. And then what you witness over the course of the next months is like, whoa, uh, this person is changing not only in the sincerity of, you know, his or her holding to the Lord Jesus Christ, but but these other things are shifting around as well. And I think that that reflects a very deep truth about conversion, is that it requires a reorientation of the whole of one's life uh, without our really realizing it. But what kind of comes about in our lives, and this is just very precious and very sweet, is that the Lord himself does the work. You know, he works out the logic and he orchestrates those movements such that they happen by a kind of strong sweetness, which will find it much easier than formerly to engage, you know, these principles and these arguments or to have these changes almost visited upon us. And so, you know, you'll find somebody talking two, three years later about, well, I'm not so sure about, you know, uh, universal right to abortion, you know, through the end of the third trimester. And you're like, oh, really? You know, say more. And then you might wait another couple months or a couple years and the person's standing next to you outside of the abortion mill and they're, they're praying for the end. And you're like, this is awesome. You know, look at Jesus go. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about it in a previous episode, the conversion metanoia. It's it's not just a, a part-time gig to follow Christ. You know, he wants all of us. <clears throat> so we see that alive and well in Augustine and all and, and every saint and all of us pursuing Christ. It's kind of the job or the work of the pursuit of holiness. So yeah, Augustine, what he once feared, it's not something to fear. It's profound. It kind of says it says what it needs to say. One of these changes that that comes up in Augustine's life then at this point is his decision to leave his teaching post as a teacher of rhetoric and, and sort of public speaking and, and that sort of thing. It's a big deal because it's not simply a leaving or his job or a career change or that sort of thing, but because if we think of what we've how we've journeyed with Augustine, um, his whole life his whole education, his whole sort of professional life has has been in this world. Um, this is kind of everything he knows. And I think there's been disillusionment as we've heard him reflect about the life of, of speaking and just all that entails. And so it's not a sort of just a flip of a switch, but here, you know, there's, there's real reason to leave the job behind. 
but he does so in a, in a kind of interesting way. Like there's the vintage vacation coming up. So sort of a, a summer break from, I believe summer, uh, break from school and all that. So he uses that opportunity as a time to, to sort of leave in a quiet way too. So as not to cause a stir or make it seem as if he's leaving in the middle of like term, as it were, to draw more attention to himself and all that. So yeah, I, I guess the timing of that, it's it's interesting, but maybe less important but the the whole kind of again leaving behind life work career all of that in pursuit of christ i don't know if you have something to say about that father father gregory well, I, I do it is interesting the series of thoughts that he works through in determining when best to take a step back from the oratorical arts and his reasoning it's fascinating he, he almost feels that he continues to dirty himself in a profession which no longer corresponds to the purity or to the holiness, the sanctity of the call that he's received in his life. So it's not necessarily that he himself is all the way, like he's all of a sudden become better than this profession. It's just that there's something at work in his life which is gradually distancing him from it. And it's interesting he describes his profession in terms of selling words, uh, which you know, if you put it in those terms, it's like you have dominion over the words and it's yours to manipulate them, to control them, and even to to sell them. But now he knows that he can't engage or indulge in such type commerce uh, because specifically because the word of God has spoken into his life. And we think of that beautiful prayer, which we'll hear in the next book, you know, you called and you shouted and you broke through my deafness so that he is, he's had a word spoken to him. That word has had a profound effect on his life and has begun to rearrange the moral furniture of his heart of hearts. And there's just no longer room, as it were, for this type of commerce or this type of treatment of the word to claim dominion, to claim whatever the kind of control that one might yeah, exercise as a kind of sophist, you know, one who deals in principles and arguments, but not in the truth itself, because truth himself has spoken to him. And as a result of which, he needs speak in such a way as to reflect that call in all of its depth and all of its richness. So yeah, very beautiful. Yeah, when it, it recalls to my mind, um, St. Augustine's earlier reflections when he was in school, when he was a teenager and a young man, and you know, in writing the confessions, reflecting on that, realizing that what he was experiencing was men who are more concerned with the correct pronunciation of things rather than preaching or proclaiming the truth or even living what is good and true. And we see that you know, that Augustine comes face to face with this, like kind of on the other side, not as a student now, but as a teacher. And so the, his conversion, you know, it pulls him in, in this direction. Okay. So we mentioned the, the vintage vacation, um, which is, I don't know, I just find that to be a kind of a funny way of saying it like a summer break, but it is what it is. So that's what they're calling it. Uh, vintage vacation. He goes to stay with some friends kind of out in the country, Veracundus. Um, he goes to stay at his sort of summer place, I guess, as far as I understand, it's kind of like vacation home out in the country, um, along with some other people, including Nebridius and these two men. Uh, so remember that St. Augustine converted when, when he could, not that he converted, obviously we know, know that, but that he converted with son, his son, Adeodatus and his friend, Olypius. And he's with these two other men, Veracundus and Nebridius, who have yet to convert, but they end up coming into the church uh, on their own, in their own way. So one of the things that stands out to me in the gospels and the lives of the saints in our own lives is, is the way by which our Lord uses us to bring others to Christ, you know, to be his instruments of grace and salvation. The story that always stands out in my mind is, is the, the Samaritan woman at the well from, from the gospel of John, you know, she, she meets Christ at the well, there's this conversation back and forth and she goes back and 
brings others, you know, proclaims Christ in the city and the town convert. Um, that's not the only time that happens in the Gospels. That happens a lot, and we see this in the lives of the saints, that holiness kind of radiates and it is contagious. And yeah, Augustine, for his whole life, there have been people who have worked and prayed and been instrumental in his conversion. And now, now that he's a member of the church, it, he becomes part of that sort of, you know, that mission of bringing others to Christ. So that, that stood out a lot to me. And, and it's the case too that Veracundus and Imbridius both pass, you know, they die soon after their conversions or at their conversions. So that's a kind of heartwarming conversion story here that they have in his circle of friends. Yeah, it's it's fascinating too because they're kind of realizing their dream, which they discussed previously. You know, prior to their conversion of living together in an intentional way, so they they kind of advance in the conversation to the point of saying, "All right, we want to ask the deep questions. We want to search after truth. We want to do it together as a community." And then they're like, "Wait, what about our wives?" And then the plan falls apart. <laughs> so at this point, they're overcoming you know yet further obstacles to their communion because they have a deeper, a more profound basis of communion in Christ. So you see that our faith is, I mean, it's communal all the way down. It's not like, oh, okay, I just need to make some progress in temperance or in fortitude or in justice so I can use other people to that end. But eventually when I get to a certain point of moral perfection, then I will just leave them behind and uh, embark upon a life as a hermit. Now, some people do that, but it's very few. In general, though, we would say that the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has a kind of claim on us throughout the entirety of our life and unto ages of ages. Because for us, like that's the point. You know, human perfection is not defined by overcoming our need for dependence or our need for interrelation or interpersonality. Nope, that's part and parcel of our perfection. And truth be told, you know, we are good and we are sanctified to the degree and extent that we engage in these relationships well, you know, so as to encourage others in their own conversion, to profit from their witness ourselves, uh, and to journey further up and further in to, as it were, the, the kind of heart of Trinitarian communion. So, yeah. Great. Well, I think at this point, we're going to leave it there. I think some conversions, some um, conversions amongst friends and, and going to Christ together, leaving behind that fear, pursuing him, it's good enough. We can take that and meditate on that for today. So next time, well, we're going to carry on with surprise, the next chapters of book nine. So stay tuned. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics.